All right, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here on the last day of 2017. You guys know it's the last day of 2017, right? Okay, update your checkbooks accordingly. But I've never really been a New Year's resolution person myself, but for some reason, I am always interested in them as a phenomenon. I like to track and see what people are doing for New Year's resolutions and the statistics about who completes them, which is no one, and and how all that goes. In fact, I actually learned this year something new about New Year's resolutions. It's believed the practice dates back 4,000 years to ancient Babylon, that they would resolve things to the emperor at the beginning of the new year. Now, if you're a New Year's resolution person, good luck to you. Uh, Maybe you're not into New Year's resolutions, that's fine, but you love to plan. You cracked open a brand new 12-month calendar this week, and you've started writing in goals and plans for 2018, and then orderly, color-coded system. My wife's, I love my wife's uh, yearly planner. I mean, it, it's, she does, she's good at little like drawings and doodles and things about what's happening, you know, birthdays and stuff. You go look on the calendar and there's little presents and it's all color-coded. I can't do any of that. Or maybe you're not looking forward to 2018 at all. Maybe on your horizon, there are storm clouds gathering. Uh, perhaps you're facing threats or hazards or heartache in the coming days. No matter your state of mind this morning, we are glad you're here, and God has promised to meet with you and to reveal his incredible love for you. I want to set Psalm 34 before us today as a very significant piece of scripture when it comes to looking ahead in life and when it comes to just living life day to day. At the end of the year, during New Year's, it's one of those times where we tend as a culture to look forward and think about life and think about plans and goals and our day-to-day, and this is a passage that should make us sit up and take notice during this time of the year. It's an important passage, obviously, because it's inspired. It's from God to us, as is the whole Bible, but this song glows particularly bright. It's one of the few acrostic psalms, meaning that each verse begins with consecutive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's a few psalms like that, really the only one that we can tell are like that is Psalm 119, right? You'll see in your Bible, they'll have the little Hebrew uh, character there before each stanza. Well, there are a few other Psalms that are written in that same way, and this is one of them. Uh, It was meant to be memorized. That's why the authors wrote them that way. And then when you get to the New Testament, we find that this Psalm, Psalm 34, is directly quoted by Peter and alluded to in various other epistles. And so we can be confident that these are words worth great consideration for us. And they're incredible words. You know, we heard them already uh, this morning. Liz read them for us. But the more we listen, the more we pay attention to them, the more we realize, man, we're going places in this psalm. This is a song talking about a big God who has big plans for his people. In fact, some of it, frankly, seems too good to be true. But we can trust the content and we can trust the source because we know that God cannot fail. He is always true and he is always good. And here to deliver this message, he used a man who could speak to us with authority. You know, David, King David was someone worth listening to. You, you can see that um, in the world and maybe on the news or, you know, as you flip around and they're interviewing people. Some people are worth listening to and a lot of people are not as worth listening to, right? Well, King David was worth listening to. He was a man uh, that knew what he was talking about when it came to living a godly life and experiencing God's power and trusting in the Lord in the face of adversity. 
And so let's see what David has to say, beginning with the superscript there above verse one. It says this, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. You can read the narrative of this episode in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Uh, Just to give you a quick background, David was in a dark period of fear and failure. He was on the run from King Saul who had uh, decided he wanted to kill David And David fled from Israel into the land of their enemies, the Philistines. He had just had a near-death experience where he got picked up in the hometown of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword. And everybody said, aren't you the guy who's killed tens of thousands of Philistines? They bring him before the king there, and he's about to be killed. And he comes up with a plan. I'm going to act like a crazy person and uh, drool all over my beard and claw on the wall. And the king says, let's get this guy out of here. We're not going to... We're not going to kill this guy. Kick him out. So he's had this near-death experience. He finally makes it out to a cave in the wilderness. He has no help. He has no supplies. He's got no answers for what uh, is going to happen in his life. He's still a fugitive. But finally, in this dark period, he stops and he says, okay, what does the Lord want for my life? I've made a lot of decisions and turns and I've made a lot of efforts here, but what does the Lord want? And from that moment of surrender came a lot of things, but came this song out of that cave. Out of the darkness of that cave, he wrote a psalm. In fact, it's more than a psalm. John Phillips uh, calls it a song and a sermon, devotional and doctrinal. And so looking at the backdrop of these verses just here in the superscript, the message is that no matter what you're facing and no matter how afraid you might be or how much you may have failed in recent days, God can lay hold of your life today and do work. In the dark of a deserted cave, God found a man who was consumed with doubt and consumed with fear and on the run. And yet, what happened? Once he interacted with the Lord, this song of hope broke through. And that's the power of our God. Now, as we get into our text, we should know that the theme of this psalm is the Lord. That's the theme of this psalm. I mean, there's a lot for us here And there's a lot we're going to get to think about about our lives and what the Lord has done for us and promised to us and all of his plans for us, right? But this psalm is about the Lord. It has a lot of instruction, but notice how many times his name is used as your eyes scan over the page there. Again and again, we see the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, 16 times, in fact. And this song is about the greatness of our God and the greatness of his work on behalf of those who fear him. Now, if we were looking at these stanza by stanza, each one can have a little bit of a summary or a little bit of a sort of topic theme. We might call the summary of the first stanza here a plan for big praise. Look at verse one. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, this is a great verse, and we write songs, you know, modern songs about it, but this is one of those verses that, if you take a look at it, it's kind of like that verse, pray without ceasing, right? A great verse, and we all know it, but if you step back and look at it, you think, well, am I supposed to just walk around just chanting worship songs and prayers nonstop? Is that what God is asking me to do? How can I have a normal conversation? How can I live a normal life if this is the directive? Well, David is describing a mindset here. He's describing the attitude of the heart. And the sentiment of what he's saying is more understandable when we read it as it's rendered, say, in the Septuagint, where it says, I will bless the Lord at every occasion. Uh, That helps us get closer to uh, the sentiment there. And what's important to note is that this psalm, which gives context to our past, anticipates our futures, helps us prioritize life, lays out how to set 
goals and make plans of action. It does all of those things for us, but it starts here with a choice to set our minds on the Lord and to live a life of public worship. That praise was in his mouth, he said, not just in his heart, but in his mouth. You know, so often we're sold the lie that if we were just richer or thinner or more popular, well, then we would be happy. Then our life would be on track. Then we would uh, understand the fulfillment that we are all looking for. But that's not a true formula. If it was a true formula that if I was just more popular, if I was just richer, if I was just thinner, then I would be more happy. If that was true, well, then Robin Williams and Tony Scott and Chris Cornell and so many others wouldn't have ended their own lives, right? These people who are at the pinnacle of their field, they have all the fame in the world. They, they are, you know, uh, people are thronging after them. They have money and they have success. They have all of these earthly pleasures and, and we see how desperate and how empty uh, they were. And so that's not a true formula. Instead, a life full of the blessings promised in this song starts with a choice to be in a growing relationship with God. It's a choice to offer our lives in worship. And so right from the outset, we've heard the psalm already. We're going places in this psalm. Lots of promise, uh, lots of exciting things that the Lord is going to do in our lives. But it starts, hey, we're going to make a choice, set our minds on the Lord, and fill our mouths with his praise. Verse 2 says this, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. You know, the spiritual life is contagious. We're reminded here that what we are broadcasting out of our lives has the potential to impact others, both positively and negatively. Um, Your behavior and your words and your spiritual life has an effect on the people around you. And when David got to that cave and when he got his heart back in connection with his God, We're told there in 1 Samuel that his family and hundreds of others who were distressed and who were struggling were then drawn to him, and he was able to minister to them and to lead them. It was a great moment. On a practical level, if you're looking into 2018 and the prayer of your heart is, Lord, you know, I want more ministry. Give me something to do, something more to do, something new to do. Well, we can learn from David's example that uh, just start giving public thanks for what God has done in your life. As we give thanks for who God is and what he has done, people are drawn to that and the Lord brings us people that we can minister to and that we can uh, tell more about him. We're told to boast in the Lord. We're to show him off and exclaim his praise. It's a light that we're shining. We learn that song as young Christian children, right? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Well, part of that is just proclaiming the praise of the Lord, giving public thanksgiving of what he has done on our behalf and who he has been in our lives. And it's encouraging to me to know that even basic acts of worship in the Christian life can bear fruit for the kingdom. You know, I mean, this is something that we're learning out of David's example here. Your happy singing this morning can build up another person in their faith, can draw another person near you closer to the Lord. But you know, it won't happen if we're silent. If we all sit in silence and we aren't thanking the Lord, and we aren't praising the Lord, and our mouths aren't filled with his worship, well then, that's not going to be used, right? David said, hey, I was praising the Lord, I was blessing the Lord, and then the humble heard of it, and they were glad. They were built up, they were drawn closer to the Lord. And so, 
We're encouraged that God can use the smallest aspects of our devotion to do big things, right? He can use five loaves and two fish. He can use the faith of a mustard seed, but not if it isn't offered. And that is a common sense thing, but it's an important reminder for me, I know, to that I've got to cooperate with the Lord. He's the one that accomplishes work through our lives. He's the one that bears fruit in our lives, but we have to cooperate. We have to put that yoke on us, Jesus said, and walk with him and allow him to do that work. Verse three says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And so the first section here comes to a close with an invitation for all of us to join in with the chorus. David has decided that he is gonna bless the Lord no matter what. And because of that, when his life was shaken, praise spilled out. If you thought of his life, you know, as a, as a cup full of something, when you shook it, praise poured out. No longer was his heart filled with fear. It was filled with hallelujah. And he realized that this is the necessary foundation for the life of a believer. And so first things first, we're invited to take action and lift high the name of the Lord individually and in community with one another. The next stanza could be summarized this way, the path to deliverance. It says in verse four, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. What a verse. I'm sure uh, maybe someone in here, this is your life verse, or maybe you have this up on your wall in the house. Uh, This psalm clues us in, though, on just how needy we are. At least six times, David is gonna confirm the fact that our God is a rescuer. And it's a good reminder, we don't need help in this life, we need deliverance. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued from sin, we need to be rescued from fear. But the good news is that there's a God who hears and who moves on behalf of his people. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, the message is you are not alone. You've not been left as an orphan in this world. The God who made heaven and earth has bent his ear to hear your cries and to hear your prayers as you pray. And if you seek him, he promises that you will find him. What a great and awesome promise for us. Our Lord is strong to deliver us from any fear, from any foe, from any failure. Verse five, they looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. So here David switches from the singular to the plural. Who are the they he's talking about? Well, all of the redeemed. You see, the power of God was not just reserved only for David or only for a few spiritual elites. So many things in our world get reserved for a few, right? It's, there's first class and then there's coach. There's, there's these distinctions. Well, you know, that applies to these people, but it doesn't apply to everybody else. Well, not so when it comes to spiritual things. God didn't just reserve his power and his work and his redemption just for the king or just for you know, heroes of the faith. Heaven's supplies are flung open for anyone who will seek the Lord. Uh, there's a great song by the band Delirious. It's called King or Cripple, right? And, and, and the idea is that the Lord's access is given to kings and to cripples. His power is given to everyone across the board, anyone who wants to call out to him and lay hold of him as their God. And so when God works in our lives, the result is real enlightenment. God illuminates our understanding. He lights up your life in a way that is conspicuous. There in Acts chapter four, we remember that the disciples were dragged in front of their enemies 
They had every reason to be afraid, but they were so full of joy and boldness and real enlightenment that it was clear to these learned men, these rulers of the nation, that they had been with Jesus. And it wasn't because the disciples were special. In fact, Luke makes it clear. He makes it a point of telling us these were ordinary men. Uh, They're in a parenthesis, but because they had a real relationship with God and because they experienced his filling and his movement in their lives, they were conspicuously shining. It's like their faces were radiant. And the people there in the Sanhedrin looked at these guys and they said, man, you guys have been with Jesus. How do you know these things? How have you experienced these things? And uh, they were not ashamed, but they were radiant. Verse six, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The poor, the afraid, the afflicted, they all have immediate access to God through Jesus Christ, the Savior. David had been trying to outrun his fears. He had been trying to outrun his troubles at this point in his life, but the more he ran, the deeper in trouble he found himself. Salvation wasn't gonna be found in a sword. It wasn't gonna be found in a citadel. It was found when he finally called out to his Lord and he surrendered himself. He says, you know what, Lord, I'm gonna trust you to be over my life. I'm gonna trust you to guide me. I'm no longer gonna try to find a sword, Goliath's sword. I'm never gonna try to find a citadel, Goliath's city. Instead, I'm just gonna go and commune with you. And from there, he realized, oh, it is the Lord that has saved me out of all my troubles. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and he delivers them. As David reveals the Lord to us in this song, we see more and more that he is a God of personal kindness. He's a God of tender intimacy. Not only does he grant us access to his very presence, well, he makes it a point to listen to us and travel through life with us. We've just come out of the Christmas season, right? Singing songs about Emmanuel, God with us. He surrounds us like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I don't know how many of you have ever been to like a photo meet and greet with like, say, a government official. If you've been to the state capitol or maybe you've been to Washington, D.C., maybe somebody here has actually met the president, right? And it's one thing to be granted access. Very few people are granted access to even interact with governors or presidents or kings or things like that. But then even beyond that, I understand the president or the governor, they're probably not really listening to what you have to say. They probably didn't take you by the hand and bring you over to the couch and sit you down and say, now tell me your story. Now talk to me about what's on your heart. Now let's share together about you know, your life and my plans for your life. What is it? You, you, well, you've seen it before. People walk in. This is the president. Hello, Mr. President. Shake a hand. Take a picture. Walk out, right? And we understand that. That's not how God works with us. He says, yeah, you have access to my presence, but I'm gonna give you more than access. I'm, I'm gonna encamp around you. I'm gonna walk with you through life. I'm your Emmanuel. I'm your God who's gonna take up residence in your heart. That's who our God is. It's a wonderful and fearful thing. Notice the qualifier here, though. Those who fear him is who the angel of the Lord encamps around. A person who does not fear the Lord should not expect any of these protections and promises to apply to them. It's qualified. He says, you want the Lord to encamp around you? Great, he's willing to do that for those who fear him. Jesus explained that in the end, many are gonna cry out to God saying, oh Lord, Lord, do this for us. Open up the gates of the kingdom for us. And what's the Lord gonna have to reply? He's gonna say, I don't know you. 
you don't belong to me. You don't fear me. You don't love me. And what we learn from the scriptures is that God's rescue plan is big enough for all the world, but a person cannot enjoy the power of salvation and the everlasting life that God wants to give them if they will not receive the Savior. You can't be saved if you reject the Savior. And David would have us recognize that. In our third stanza, we might summarize it this way, partake of God's goodness. Verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. David has been speaking from personal experience, but now he challenges each of us to try it for ourselves. You know, no one can taste food for you, right? You gotta do it on your own. Neither can the Christian life be lived on behalf of someone else. No one can live out this life for you. You can't give up that, that, uh, that portion of your life to someone else to do it on your behalf. No pinch hitters in the spiritual life. If you watch someone else eat, okay, they're eating, but there's no flavor in your mouth. There's no nourishment in your stomach. And so David gives us here a personal call to personal spirituality. And Jesus explained in John 6 that he's the bread of life. He's the living water. And our relationship with him is meant to be a daily experience where we are nourished by the Lord down to our very core. And though some aspects of Christianity may be an acquired taste, that's true, we can be sure that we will never be let down. Why? Because the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good, David challenges us. You know, the mantra of the modern man is what? I just want to be happy. That's the mantra of the modern man. What's amazing is that the Bible gives a very clear path to fullness of joy and fullness of purpose, to satisfaction and fulfillment and all these other things. It lays out the secret to the happy life for everyone to see. Anybody who wants to open up the Bible can see the way to the happy life. It says, blessed, oh, how happy is the man who fears the Lord, who trusts the Lord. You know, trust in the biblical sense is an active thing. It means to take refuge in God. It means to flee to him for protection and to uh, go inside of his borders and enjoy what he has set over you. Verse nine, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. No want doesn't mean we queue up our, our Amazon wish list and email it into heaven. I don't have that email address, but uh, that's not what we're talking about here, of course. It means that those who fear God will have no deficiency, no deficiency. When you fear God, you're not giving up anything. You're not giving up a life. You're not missing out on anything that the world has to offer other than garbage. That's like, it's like going to a garbage truck and saying, you're taking things away. I want, I want you to give me some of that stuff. Okay, I'll pour this garbage on you. When we give up the world and turn to the Lord, we're, we're not deficient. The Lord becomes our sufficiency. He says, I'm going to install all kinds of things in your life. I'm going to bless you more than you can ask or imagine. And he fills our lives with himself, and the Bible says, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And notice this. I'm talking about the fear of the Lord a lot today because David brings it up again and again. We don't fear God for his benefit. It's not like God is Tinkerbell in the old Peter Pan play. And then if we don't clap at him enough, his light's gonna go out. That's not what this is about at all. Yes, God deserves to be feared because he's worthy of praise and he is awesome and there's none like him. But you know, when we orient our lives around the Lord and, and his will and when we obey him, when we fear the Lord, we're the ones who benefit. 
because God is full of generous grace. He says, hey, when you fear me, I, I just start pouring myself into your life. I start pouring out the blessings of heaven onto you. Not because we deserve it, but because he is good and because he is full of grace. David illustrates the idea in verse 10. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. You know, lions have one kind of power, and it is magnificent. Uh, It is awesome. I love that they have the lions over there at the Fresno Zoo now, and they've got them prowling around. They've got some cubs right now. They have a male and some females. I mean, and they are just fierce animals, even from far away behind all the fence and everything. You just, there's a a terribleness about those lions. But, you know, they're always on the prowl for their next meal, right? They're in the wild, at least, at the zoo. They're kind of fat and lazy, but they're in the wild. They're just this king of the jungle, this mightiest of animals, always on the prowl for their next meal. But here, David shows a great distinction. An animal like a lion survives, but God wants much more for you. He doesn't want you to just survive and make it through life. Rather than simply surviving, the Bible tells us that Christ came to give you life more abundantly. And when a person gets saved, it's not just from hell, not that we're just surviving through life so that we can make it to heaven, It's so that we can have a whole new life transformed by the power of God. And commentators point out all the time that when Jesus talks about everlasting life in the gospels, it's always a from this point forward, from this life on into heaven and into eternity. That everlasting life is not withheld from us. The Lord says you have everlasting life now when you have become a Christian. And so... Uh, That's what the Lord wants to do for us. We partake of God's goodness here through tasting, through trusting, by fearing and seeking. It's all wrapped up together. God doesn't want our spiritual lives to be some sterile transactional set of rituals. That's not what he's looking for. Instead, he's invited us into a personal, intimate relationship where we experience his goodness and his growth day by day. That's the picture David is uh, painting for us. Fourth stanza might be summarized this way, a policy for living. Verse 11 says, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So after hearing about all of the benefits that come through the fear of the Lord, David now is gonna take us from the sanctuary into the schoolroom. He says, hey, look how great this is. Here's some promises. Look what the Lord wants to do. And now let me tell you about how we lay hold of this, some practical aspects of it. The fear of the Lord is a big topic for us to try to wrap our minds around. One single passage certainly isn't enough for us to get all we need to understand it, but luckily the Bible is full of instruction and example on the subject. Here David gives a short lecture that puts the fear of God into shoe leather, as Dr. J. Vernon McGee would say. The first step in understanding the fear of the Lord is to simply listen to what the scriptures have to say about it. He says, hey, come and listen. Come and hear the words of the Lord and listen to them. Now, in the Bible, listening means to hear and obey. It's not just a passive thing. It's not just that we put the headphones on and then lay down, you know, and and listen to that tape while we sleep. No, it's an active thing. We hear it and we obey it. And so we know that the Bible is teaching, and the question is, are we hearing it and are we obeying it? These are two distinct things. We need to hear the word and we need to obey the word. Verse 12 says, who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see the good? As with so many of the invitations in the Bible, this one is open to anyone who wants in. He says, hey, who's, who's signing up? Who's the man? Who's the person that wants in 
to what I'm talking about here. It's a wide open invitation. You know, God's word unlocks these big secrets and he puts them right on the bottom shelf for all of us to lay hold of. And so do you really want to live life with fullness and with satisfaction? That's what David's asking, and it's a question each of us should pause to consider. You know, knowing what we know about the Christian life, knowing what we know about the offer of God, do we want to live that life? That's the question. If the answer is yes, David has a lot to teach us. Look at verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David starts with words, keep your tongue from evil, then moves to our immediate actions, depart from evil and do good, and then gives us bigger goals to aim toward, seek peace and pursue it. As usual, God's work starts in the interior of a person. The first area of consideration here is the words, which are formed by the mind, fueled by the heart. Instead of deception, this psalm is encouraging us to be speaking adoration of our king. And again, David can speak with authority of experience. He has just come from a period where he had been just lying perpetually again and again with each time he sank lower into failure, almost cost him his life. It would cost the lives of a number of the priests later on in the story. But now here he can say with confidence, you know what, deceit is not gonna lead us where we want to go in life. In fact, it's gonna drag us down. Instead, we're to turn away from evil and do good. And we would note that you can't always avoid evil. Even David knows that. I can't always avoid evil, but God has given the power so we can always turn away from it. So if evil comes across your path, turn away from that. You can't always avoid it. You can't always miss it, but we can always turn away from it. So instead of evil, how can we do good? How can we bring joy to others, give public thanks to God? How can we worship the Lord? How can we serve the Lord and exalt his name? Well, there's a lot of ways for us to do all of those things. We can do good with our time or with our money or with our efforts or with our words or with our example. I mean, the sky's the limit how we can do good for the Lord. Now, specifically here, David encourages us to live lives where we are seeking peace and pursuing it. And of course, we can apply that to our immediate relationships and to our communities, seeking peace as in the absence of strife, right? And, and, uh, but we are reminded also that Paul said in Ephesians 2 that Christ himself is our peace. And if we think about it that way, it takes on a little bit different understanding. And so we are to turn from evil things, instead dedicating our lives to godly things, pursuing Christ and not letting our love for him slip away. The fifth stanza beginning in verse 15 might be summarized as the perception of a holy God. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. God is attentive. He watches and he listens. But here David explains that if we want God's attention, we must be righteous. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Well, who are the righteous? Well, we know that we don't become righteous through acts or works. We are declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is through faith in him that a person is justified and therefore made righteous before God. Romans 3 says that God makes sinners right in his eyes when they believe in Jesus. That and that alone is what grants us the kind of access that David has been talking about. Access to the Lord in prayer, access to that intimacy, access to that favor and that protection. By contrast, here's what David says in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them 
from the earth. Now, God is love. That truth is on display throughout this psalm and elsewhere in scripture, but the reality of judgment is just as true. God is a judge, and he's going to judge sin. And we're told that he watches all the people of the earth. Those that he has redeemed have special access and promises and protections, but he also sees and keeps a record of everything that is done on this planet. And the Bible is very clear. If you are not a Christian, God loves you, but he is against you because you are against him. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And God is therefore against you as well. And he must judge your sin because he is perfect and he is holy and he is righteous. He can't just overlook that. That would be unjust. It would be wrong. We wouldn't want judges in our society to do that, just to say, well, I know you did it. You're guilty of all these crimes. I'm just gonna look the other way because after all, I don't want people to think you know, I'm mean or anything like that. We would never want a judge to do that, right? How much more the judge of all the earth, he is absolutely perfect and absolutely holy and he must judge your sin. He can either do it at the cross or he will do it at his white throne at the end of human history. At the cross, you stand with Jesus Christ. At the white throne, you stand alone and nothing will be able to save you. You will be cut off and endure the eternal penalty for your sin. Someone has to bear the guilt of sin. And Jesus is more than willing to take that guilt upon himself if we will call out to him. And so the immediate question is, are you in verse 15 or are you in verse 16? And that's your choice to make individually. Romans 10, 13 echoes what David has been saying again and again in these verses. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you haven't done that, that can be you Today, if you will call out to Jesus Christ, he wants to rescue. He's a rescuer, but he will not do it if you don't want him to. Next stanza beginning in verse 17 can be summarized as the personal presence of God. It says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The unredeemed will be destroyed. The redeemed will be delivered. The difference is whether a person is justified by faith in Christ? Do you trust God? Do you fear him? Is he your king and your savior? Verse 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. From the greater scale to the smaller scale, God offers his personal presence to us. If you were trapped in a burning building, a fireman would come and risk his life to pull you out, and that is an incredible thing. Thankful for that. But you know, that fireman is probably not going to then come and start meeting with you day after day to help you through the grief of your loss, right? I mean, that's not their function. That's not their job. But notice here the presence of God. He is the rescuer and the comforter. He's a God of great tenderness and affection toward his people. He is near us and ready to hear and ready to move and ready to lay his hands on the lives uh, of men and women and mend their broken hearts. In the final stanza, we're shown the product of godliness. It says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Things were going so well up through (laughs) verse 18, right? So many promises, the banishing of all our fears and all our troubles, and now David comes to a close, but not by saying maybe are the afflictions of the righteous, but many are the afflictions of the righteous. David knew firsthand that even the innocent will suffer, especially those who follow the Lord, but Greater than all the problems of life is the promise of the deliverance and the power of the deliverer. You and I will be delivered 
from every sin and every suffering and every sorrow. If not immediately, then ultimately. We prefer the immediate. I prefer it. I'm sure you do too, but that is not what is guaranteed. The ultimate deliverance is what God guarantees his people. Verse 20, he guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, I've never broken a bone, but I'm sure many of you have. So what's the deal here? Is it, you get to this promise and you're like, man, everything was going so well. This final stanza, we're going off the rails. He's promising many afflictions. He's saying I should never break a bone. What's up with that? Well, this promise is specifically applied to Jesus Christ later in the New Testament book of John. It is not a promise that no Christian will ever fracture their wrist or snap their arm or anything like that. It was uh, primarily a prophecy for the Messiah, and it is also a poetic declaration. Remember, we're reading poetry here, that God's tender care for us extends throughout life, top to bottom, from our circumstances out down to the very frame of who we are. Our bones are our frame, right, that hold us up. And the Lord says, hey, my work in your life, my love for you is so comprehensive, it goes all the way down to the frame of who you are, and that is not going to be broken and shaken. I'm going to lay hold of your life and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. Another very clear warning to anyone who refuses to go God's way here to stand against God's people is to stand against the Lord himself. And our God is a God of vengeance. He will repay the wrongs done to us for his sake. By way of application, we would note the fierce love that God has for his saints, and that means that we as Christians should be developing that same kind of love for one another. And then 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. As the song comes to a close, a portrait has been painted of a comprehensive Savior, one that rescues from troubles and delivers us from fears and guards our lives and walks with us and has bought back our souls. Though we, like David, will have times of failure, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so rather than be condemned, we should be commended to continue afresh in our fear of the Lord. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the gateway that starts us into all of these promises and all of these protections. Those who fear the Lord, those who love the Lord, those who seek the Lord. And so don't be condemned, be commended. Pursuing the Lord, watching him add to our lives the incredible blessings of heaven. And we've seen the route to take. We don't merit these gracious gifts. We don't generate them ourselves. We're simply told to fear God and to trust him, to call out to him in prayer, to learn from him and obey what he has given us to do. We're told to respond in worship and public thanksgiving for all that God has done. Simple things. As we live out this God-fearing life, the Lord hears, the Lord delivers, the Lord saves, the Lord encamps with us, the Lord supplies, the Lord heals hearts, the Lord redeems. These are the promises of Psalm 34, wonderful promises uh, from a wonderful Savior. Let's pray.